We're nearly coming to the end of this uh, letter, brothers and sisters. I think we've got two more um, messages after today. And I don't know about you, but when I've been studying uh, for the sermons in the latter half of this letter, it's felt almost like we're, we're going through a marathon. Now, I've never run a marathon, and I don't intend to. <laughs> I don't think that my body could cope with it. But I can imagine that in a marathon, the best part of the race is somewhere in the middle, or maybe in the beginning of the second half of the race. But then when you get into the end, you know, things are getting tough. Your legs are hurting, your lungs are hurting. You want to just see that finish line and cross that finish line and have something to eat. You want to have a rest. And it, it, it can almost feel like we're kind of coming to the end of a marathon at the end of 2 Corinthians. Because Paul has been doing something from about chapter 10 onwards in this book over and over again. And what he's been doing is he's been defending his ministry. He's been defending his apostleship. And he only did that once in the first nine chapters of this letter. And so it can be tough, and you can be reading this, and you can think, you know, Paul, you're, you're doing the same thing again. You're defending your ministry. This is getting a bit tiresome. Do we have to go over this again? Why are you having to do this all the time, Paul? And I'm just saying this, brothers and sisters, to warn you, because today's message, you've guessed it, is about Paul's ministry credentials. He's going to be defending his apostleship again today as we go through this chapter. Now, as soon as I've said that, some of you are probably thinking, oh no, Adam, not another sermon about Paul's ministry credentials. Do we have to go through this again? This is getting too much. And you might be tempted to start thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or what maybe Neil's going to teach tonight in the book of Acts, which might be slightly more interesting. But before you do that, before you switch off, before you lose concentration, let me implore you not to do that. And let me implore you not to do that for, from the reason why Paul is going over this over and over again. If you remember in Corinth, there were these false teachers that had got into the uh, congregation. They were having an influence upon the people there. And Paul knew that they were having a profoundly bad influence upon the Christians there. And the Christians, their lives were being damaged by these false teachers. And so Paul is wanting to give them every single opportunity that they need to see what a real leader is and also what a false leader is. So that they don't follow the false teachers, but they follow his ministry. It's a bit like, for example, uh, when I'm at home with my sons. And in our new house, we've got a wood-burning stove, which is really great. And if I'm there in my living room with my boys and the fire's on, and one of them goes to touch that wood-burning stove, I'm going to grab their hand and say, no, don't do that. You will get burnt. And if I go away and 10 minutes later I come back and they're doing the same thing, am I just going to leave them and say, oh, well, I've told them once they should learn their lesson? No, I'm going to grab their hand and I'm going to say, no, don't do that. You will burn yourself. 
And this is what Paul's doing in the latter part of 2 Corinthians. He is grabbing the hand of the Corinthian believers and saying, look, listen to me. This is what a real leader looks like. This is what a false leader looks like. Don't follow the false leader. Follow the true leader and apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing. Now, this is the same for us. What the Spirit wants to do for us as we've been going through the latter, heart, latter third of this book, is he's wanting to grab our hand. He's wanting to say, look, you guys, this is what a real leader looks like. This is what a false leader looks like. Don't go after false leaders. Follow me through real leaders in the church. And this is very relevant for us because as I taught a couple of weeks ago about the tactics of false teachers... False teachers are in the church today. It's a reality. They've been in the church for the last 2,000 years. They will be there until Jesus comes back. And when a church puts itself underneath false teaching or a false leader, two things happen. The first thing is that Christians' lives get destroyed. They, they, they become not fruitful they quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. They become hard-hearted. And for those people that are in those churches that are not born again, when they're listening to false teaching, they won't believe in the real Jesus. And they won't get saved. And they'll be deceived. And so you can see, brothers and sisters, that this stuff is really important. And we must not switch off. We must not lose concentration on what God wants to say to us today. I mean, to highlight the importance of this, do you know that the Apostle Paul speaks about this reality of real leadership more than he speaks about the doctrine of the rapture? Do you know that he speaks about this reality of real leadership more than he speaks about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? I mean, that's not to downplay those doctrines, but it's to highlight the fact that this stuff is very important. And when you go through it, it seems a bit boring. But it has vital relevance for us today. For us to not be deceived, for us to not be led astray, to have unfruitful lives as believers in Jesus Christ. So let's listen to what the Lord wants to say to us, brothers and sisters. So he starts off in verse 11 and 12, and he just kind of introduces the rest of this chapter. He says, I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Now, when you look at this verse, you have to interpret it back to front. And you have to do that because what Paul did when he wrote Scripture was as he was writing or dictating his uh, doctrine, he would be working out the truth as he goes on. And often the, the, the real meat of the truth would be at the end of his statements. And then you would have to work backwards to see how he got there. And so he says there at the end, For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. And so what Paul knew, brothers and sisters, was that he went to Corinth in weakness. John taught us this last week. He said that Paul probably had this disease of the eyes, which Paul cried out to the Lord continuously 
to, to heal, but he didn't. He was in weakness. He had infirmity. But he also knew that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He'd been called by God. He'd been given a personal mandate and mission by Jesus. And he knew that the Spirit was working in, in, in him and through him and producing fruit. And so because of that, he says, look, I'm, I'm not behind the most eminent apostles. And that is a sarcastic phrase for the false teachers. Even though I'm nothing, even though I'm weak, I know that God is working in me and through me. And he says, because of that, you guys should have commended me. Which means you should have aligned yourself with me as the true apostle of Jesus Christ. But you didn't. And because of that, I was compelled. I was compelled to boast in my ministry, to glory in it. It's interesting because Paul agrees with us at the beginning of verse 11 that it's getting a bit taxing going over this all the time. He says, I've become a fool in boasting. What he's saying there is he's saying, look guys, do I have to keep going on about this? This is getting tedious. This is, this is getting tiring. You're making me like a fool having to keep glorifying in my ministry. But I will. I feel compelled to because you're not aligning yourself with me. He goes on in verse 12 to kind of introduce to us what the theme is of his ministry credentials that he's going to talk about for the next number of verses until the end of the chapter. He says there, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So Paul says there that there were these signs that he accomplished whilst he was there in Corinth. And that word for sign there is kind of like the idea of a, a distinguishing feature or a dis dis distinguishing mark. It's a bit like you know that Wayne Rooney is a Manchester United player when he gets his top on on Saturday and goes out in the on the pitch. That shirt is his distinguishing mark as a player. It's a bit like you know that a Chelsea bun is a Chelsea bun when you see that icing and cherry on top. That's its distinguishing feature. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying, look, I did things among you that showed that I was distinctively an apostle. It says there that they were done with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, one of the mistakes that Christians make when they interpret this verse is they make the mistake that they think that because it says signs and wonders there, that the, the, the signs and wonders or miracles were the signs of an apostle that uh, Paul's talking about. But that's not the right way to interpret this verse. And it's because of the way it's written in the original language. A better way to actually interpret this verse, or to actually say this verse, would be that truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, with signs and wonders, with mighty deeds. So the signs and wonders were not the signs of an apostle, they accompanied the signs of an apostle. So that begs the question, what were these signs of an apostle that Paul accomplished among the Corinthians, that he did with perseverance and endurance and patience? Well, this is what he's going to talk about for the rest of chapter 12. He's going to talk about what the signs were of his apostleship that he accomplished among them. And what you're going to see, brothers and sisters, as we go through this, is that these signs were not external signs. 
They were not external things that were easily visible, necessarily. They were internal things in the heart. And that's very important to know. It's important to know because another mistake that Christians make is that they think just because a man or a woman can do some kind of miracle, that that must mean that they have some kind of authority from God. And they forget the fact that in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it says that Satan himself can do lying signs and wonders. So signs and wonders are not necessarily from God. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 7. If you remember there, he said, Many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, I did this sign for you. I did this wonder for you, this miracle for you. And he will say, Go away from me. I never knew you. So even Jesus at the judgment, he acknowledges that the internal things of the heart are more important than the external evidences of things in people's lives. And this is what we're going to see today. That Paul is going to talk about internal things rather than external things. Now I should just say before we get into this that I don't believe that the scripture teaches that there are any apostles like Paul in the church today. There are no apostles or people who have the same apostolic authority as Paul and the original twelve. Because those men saw the risen Jesus Christ and they were given a personal mandate by Jesus to go and take the gospel to the world. And there's no one like that today. And if anyone says to you in the church, I have the same apostolic authority as Paul, do not listen to them. They don't. No one does. I do believe there are people or men who have the gift of apostleship, which means that they have the gift to plant churches. And because of that, what we're going to see today applies directly to those men that have that gift. The things that we see should be seen in their lives. But also in a general way, it applies to all church leaders because all church leaders are called to imitate Paul in his ministry. But even, that, even more than that, it applies to all of us. Because if you remember, um, John said a number of weeks ago that in a in a real sense, we are all apostles of Jesus because we're all sent out ones. That's what apostle means, to be sent out by Jesus. And we've all been sent out by Jesus to do mission, to go and take the gospel to the, every creature in the world. And so because of that, these things should become evident in our lives as well. So even though this has got a specific application to people who plant churches, it generally applies to all of us. So let's see what he says. So the first sign is in verses 13 to 16. And I'm just going to read those verses again. He says, For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Paul saying some strange things in those verses. 
But what I want you to notice about these verses firstly is in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 16, he talks about this reality of not being burdensome to the Corinthian uh, people, to the church there. He talks about it in verse 13 that he wasn't previously. In verse 14 he says he's not going to be burdensome to them when he goes there a third time. And he mentions it again in verse 16. And again, if you remember a number of weeks ago, when we talked about the tactics of false teachers, when Paul talks about the reality that he wasn't burdensome to this church, it means that he did not take money from them. He didn't take a wage from them. When he was in Corinth, he was a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. He earned a wage through that, but he also received money from a church in Philippi that sent some down to him so he could fulfill the ministry in Corinth. So that's what he's talking about. That's his subject in these verses. He talks about it sarcastically in verse 13 where he says, you know, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches for me not being burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong, he says. Then in verse 16 he says, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty I caught you by cunning. And he's speaking sarcastically in those verses because he wants to expose the false teachers again. And in Corinth, what the false teachers were saying is they were saying that because Paul didn't take a wage from them, that he was making them inferior to other churches. And he said, please forgive me for doing that. And then in verse 16, he says that the uh, false teachers were accusing him of being crafty and deceiving the Corinthian believers. They were saying that he's not taking a wage from you now, but in the future he'll ask for more money from you. That's what they were accusing him of. But he has none of it. He doesn't even get into it in more detail. But he, in verses 14 and 15, explains again why he did not take a wage from the Corinthian believers. And it's because it says there, I do not seek yours but you. Now listen, this is really important. The reason Paul did not take a wage from the Corinthian believers is because he cared more about the condition of their heart and their souls than he did about his own material life. That's what he cared about. That's why it says, I do not seek yours. I don't seek your material possessions, he's saying. But I seek you. I want you to grow in Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing to me. And because of that, I saw that it was going to be burdensome for you to give me money and I didn't take money from you. It's interesting, he uses a real-life situation to kind of illustrate this, where he says that the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And what he's saying there is, it's, and this is true for most of the world, that as parents are working and as their children are growing up, they should sort of, in a sense, store up money from them, or for them, sorry. So that when they maybe pass on, they leave an inheritance. And that's the parent's responsibility, it's not the child's. As it says in Proverbs 13.22, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And what Paul's saying here is he he applies this real-life situation of parents storing up inheritance for their children, and he applies it to the Corinthian believers. He says, look... It's not your primary responsibility to provide for me. It's not your primary responsibility to store up treasure for me. But it is my responsibility. 
It is my responsibility to store up spiritual treasure for you and give that to you via the ministry of the Spirit. And because of that, in verse 15 he says, I will very gladly spend my own money that I earned from tent making and I will be spent for your souls because I care about your souls more than I care about my life. What an amazing leader Paul was that he would care so much for the Corinthian believers in this way. Now, in this section we see the first sign of an apostle. The first distinguishing feature of an apostle and that is that an apostle must be completely dependent upon God for his material life, for his material needs. He must be dependent upon God. An absolute necessity. And Paul, he had absolute confidence in God that God would provide for him. He, he knew he was given a ministry by the Lord Jesus and he knew that Jesus would provide every single thing that he needed to fulfill that ministry. Why? Well, that's because it was his experience. He'd seen it time and time again. Do you remember when Paul first got saved in Acts chapter 9? He went to Damascus and he was kicked out of Damascus because of persecution. He went to Jerusalem and Barnabas took him up to the apostles. And I'm sure that when they had their chinwag there in Jerusalem, that the apostles and Paul sort of established that he'd been saved and that he was called to the ministry. And I'm sure that the apostles would have shared with him when they were called to go out. Listen to what Jesus said to the apostles when they went out in Luke chapter 9, verse 3. It says, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. And then a bit further on in Luke chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, when he sends out the 70, he says, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs amongst wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. This was when Jesus called and sent out the first original 12 and the 70 to go and do the preaching of the kingdom of God. And he says, don't take anything. I don't want you to go out with any material possessions. Why? Because I want the ministry to be dependent on me. Jesus knew that if these apostles took anything out with them because they were sinners, and it started going wrong, they might put their hope in their material possessions. And Jesus said, no, it can't be like that. You guys must be dependent upon me, dependent upon the Spirit of God for the ministry to be fruitful. And for that to happen, you can't take anything. And the apostles would have shared this with Paul and said, look, Paul, if if you're called to ministry, you've got to go out with nothing. No material possessions relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was his experience everywhere he went. The Lord Jesus provided for him. Town after town, wherever he went, the Lord provided everything that he needed. Because Jesus was using Paul in a mighty way. In a way which was anointed by the Spirit incredibly. And so when Paul got to Corinth, he was like, you know, Lord, you have me. I don't need to worry about my material possessions. You're going to provide for me. 
You've done it before, you'll do it again. You'll do it every single day until I come to be with you because you've called me to this ministry and you're going to fulfill it through me. You know I need food, you know I need water, you know I need somewhere to stay, therefore you will provide for me. This was the confidence that Paul had. He was absolutely confident and dependent upon God for every single thing that he needed. And this must be the confidence of every man that has the gift of apostleship. It must be the confidence of every church leader. And it, listen, it must be our confidence as well as believers. Why? Because he says there in verse 15, Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. <laughs> You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, the more I sacrifice for you, the more I love you, the less I'm loved. I mean, have you, has any of you in here been in a situation before where you, where you started to serve in church? You started to love people in church and they don't praise you? They don't affirm you? They don't commend you? And they don't love you in return? Has anyone been in that situation? I have. You know, I think there are people in this church today who've decided not to serve in church or they're stumbled from serving in church because they've tried it before. They've tried to serve. They've tried to love. But they've got nothing in return. No love from anyone. No credit. No affirmation. No praise. And they were like, you know what? I'm leaving this. I can't do this anymore. But you know, brothers and sisters, that cannot be the way it is. It cannot be like that. We cannot first expect to be praised by men, to receive love from men or praise from men. It has to come first from God. We have to know first that God loves us in Jesus. That God affirms us in Jesus. That God actually praises us in Jesus when we're faithful to what he calls us to do. And if that's our motivation, do you know what happens? Love grows. Love grows and it grows and it grows and it has more fruit in the church. But if that's not our motivation, if our motivation is not first the love that God has for us, but praise from men, do you know what happens? Love regresses. It gets weaker, it gets weaker and it, the church becomes colder and more dead. It cannot be like that, brothers and sisters. If we want to be part of a fruitful church in the 21st century, we must first receive our love, affirmation, and praise from God and be completely dependent upon him for everything we need. So let's do that. Let's live that way. So he goes on in verses 17, 18, and 19 to show us the second sign of an apostle. I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Now, in this section, Paul is talking about a visit that Titus made to the Corinthian church. And I just want to recap a little bit on 
the historical background of this so you know what I'm talking about and you don't get lost. If you remember, Paul planted the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey in Acts 18. On his third missionary journey, he was in Ephesus. He heard some bad things about the Corinthian church and he wrote 1 Corinthians to try and sort those things out. He sent Timothy to go and check on them. Timothy came back and said, Paul, it's not really good in Corinth. And Paul said, okay, I'm going to go there and visit them myself. And he went there a second time. And when he was there, he was deeply offended and hurt by something that went on in the Corinthian church. So much so that he had to write what he called in this letter a severe letter to the Corinthian church, rebuking them openly for what had happened. And so uh, after he wrote that severe letter, he was absolutely keen to know what their response was. He wanted to know how they'd responded to that letter, and he basically started to go and visit them a third time. But on the way, he was in Macedonia, and he got caught up in some ministry activities, so he couldn't carry on going to Corinth. And instead, he sent Titus. And so Titus went to the Corinthian church, and he then went back to Paul and said, you know, Paul, they've responded quite well. And then Paul wrote to Corinthians. So the visit that he's talking about here is a visit just of the visit of Titus just before uh, Paul wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians. And again, if you notice in these verses, he asks a lot of questions about this visit, doesn't he? He says in verse 17, did I take advantage of you by those whom I sent? Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? And again, the reason why he's doing that is because he's trying to expose another accusation that was made when Titus went to the Corinthian church. And what the false teachers did is they accused Titus of being part of Paul trying to take advantage of the Corinthian believers. And then he says, how could that be the case? Because did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? He's saying there, look, you guys know I didn't take any money from you. I didn't take advantage of you in that way. And Titus walked exactly the same way as me, in spirit and in steps. So it's absolutely preposterous that you think that somehow we took advantage of you. And Paul actually gets quite angry about this in verse 19. He says, you know, again, do you think that we actually have to excuse ourselves to you? And he says, we speak before God in Christ. It's, it's, it's God we answer to, it's Christ. We don't actually have to explain ourselves to you. But he then says, but beloved, we do all things for your edification. Titus was sent to you for your edification. So he could make sure that you guys had repented of your sin and you were growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying in these verses. Now this brings up the second sign of an apostle. And that is that an apostle must be a man who promotes unity in the presence of weakness. Or he promotes unity in the presence of limitation. You remember I said that Paul, he wanted to go to the Corinthian church to check how they were doing after this severe letter, but he couldn't. He got caught up in Macedonia. He realized, listen, that he was limited that he couldn't be in two places at once. And because of that, he sent Titus. He knew he needed help. This is why Paul had guys like Timothy 
Silas and Titus because he needed help. He was a limited person. He was a sinner. This is why, brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches very clearly, I think, that biblical leadership is a group of men. Because one man cannot do all of the work. One man is limited. Now, there are circumstances where a man will go to a place to plant a church, and for a season he might be the only leader there, but I do believe the Spirit will lead him to seek out an eldership, which is a group, because he knows he's limited. He, He knows that actually he can't do this ministry all by himself. But Paul, listen, he had no problem sending Titus. Why? Because he knew that he had unity with Titus. Paul had a unity with Titus, listen brothers and sisters, that was not only spiritual, but it was a unity in doctrine and it was a unity in philosophy of ministry. Over the years, Paul and Titus, they'd talked to each other a lot, they'd wrestled through things together and they got to a place where they were just united about everything in ministry. So much so that in Titus chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says of Titus, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. If you call someone a true son, you must get on with them. You must have some kind of unity with them in life. And that's what Paul and Titus had. And because of that, Paul had no problem sending Titus to Corinth because he knew that his ministry would be reflected very well by Titus. It would be extremely fruitful if Titus went to Corinth. Now, why is unity so important? Why is Paul emphasizing this reality here in verse 18? Picking out unity is the main theme of why him and Titus had this good relationship, why it was good for him to send Titus in the first place. Well, because, because of the fact of what Jesus taught about unity in the church. Jesus said a couple of things about unity in the church in John. In John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said the following. He said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice and listen, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Then in John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed the following. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Jesus saw unity as very important. The unity that he's speaking about here is a spiritual unity. It's a unity that people enter into when they are born again. When the Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts, When we're born again, you enter into the spiritual unity of the church. Listen, because the same spirit that dwells in you dwells in every single other believer that's born again. It's a spiritual unity that's not limited by race, by ethnicity, by background. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the reality that God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit has brought Jew and Gentile together as one man. 
via the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual unity that is so important, it must be maintained. We don't create that unity, we maintain it in the bond of peace. It's incredibly important. It's important to Jesus. But even though that's the case, brothers and sisters, listen, even though we have this spiritual unity, we don't all agree on everything that the Bible teaches, do we? I mean, I think Servants Church is pretty unique in this, in all honesty. We all come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different Christianity streams. We don't all agree on different doctrines, but that's okay. It's okay because even though we have a spiritual unity that God has created, we all have to grow in the unity of faith. Paul spoke about this in Ephesians chapter 4. That unity of faith is this reality that we have to grow, all of us, into a perfect knowledge of Jesus. And we're all at different stages of that. And because of that, we don't all agree on everything. But we will do when Jesus comes back. Hallelujah. There'll be no more debates about Calvinism or Armenianism or premillennialism or amillennialism. There'll be no debates about that anymore because we will all believe the same thing. Hallelujah. No more arguments. But, but there's a reality that even though we have this spiritual uni- unity, we have to grow in the unity of faith. Now, listen, Paul and Titus, they had this spiritual unity, but they also, I believe, had a very mature standing in unity of faith because they agreed on this doctrine, they agreed on their philosophy of ministry. They were in a good place relationally. And Paul was like, this is a good thing. It's good for, the, for Titus to go to Corinth and show them this. I want them to see this unity. And that was for two reasons. The first is because if you remember, in 1 Corinthians, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for sectarianism. Do you remember there were some saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. And Paul said, look, don't do that. That's just carnal. That's just of the flesh if you do that. If you want a good example of what unity looks like, what I want you guys to grow to, look at me and Titus. We walk in the same spirit, we walk in the same steps, internally and externally. This is what you guys should be aiming for. But also, he wanted to show them this because unity is evangelical. I'll say that again, unity is evangelical. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 21. He said again, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, listen, that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you know what Jesus is teaching there? He's teaching that if the church maintains the unity of the Spirit and pursues unity of faith, people will get saved. The church will grow in holiness and purity. Why? Because where this unity is, the love of Christ is. Where the love of Christ is, the Spirit of Christ is. And where the Spirit of Christ is, people are being drawn to him and people are growing in their faith. So he's saying, look, I want them to see this because this is how they are going to be fruitful evangelically in the future. This is for their edification. 
If they want to see people get saved around them and the church to grow, they've got to pursue this same unity that me and Titus have. And this is the same for people who are called to be church planters, people who are called to be church leaders. They must pursue this unity in the presence of weakness, in the presence of limitation. They must pursue and promote the spiritual unity of the church and for the unity of faith to grow within their churches. And this applies to all of you in here as well. Servants Church is a very good example, I would say, of a church where we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace well. Me and John often have talked about the reality that we don't know how there hasn't been some sort of division in our church or some kind of split. Because we all come from radically different backgrounds. But do you know why that's not happened? It's because of Jesus. It's because of his love. It's because of his spirit working in us to maintain that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But even though I say that, I do think that in this church, because we come from different backgrounds, because we come from different streams of Christianity, there can be a pride associated with that. We can come into a church where there's lots of different opinions about things and we can think, you know what? I'm just not going to I'm not going to be willing to listen to that. I'm just going to kind of close my ears to that, close my heart to that. And we can get a bit proud about our own opinions. We can become a bit unteachable and that's not good. That's not a good place to be. That is not pursuing the unity of faith, the unity of growing in the knowledge of Jesus. So if there's anything I I think that we need to grow in as a fellowship, I do think we need to be willing to be teachable, to be willing to come to church every Sunday or wherever you go to meet up with people in this church and be of an open heart, to listen to people's opinions, to always bring it back to the Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say about this thing? And I really believe that if we do that, brothers and sisters, we will grow in the unity of faith and this church will become more fruitful, not just with people getting saved, but we will grow in holiness and righteousness. I mean, do you want that in here this morning? Do you want to see people get saved and the church grow? Well, one of the ways you can do that is to always be teachable in your heart. You don't have the perfect knowledge of Jesus. You don't have the perfect knowledge of doctrine. And I'm speaking to myself in saying this as well. And we must be open to be like, you know, I need to go back and see what the scriptures say about that. I need to pray about that. I need to ask God whether I'm really correct on this or whether actually my brother over there is correct about that. If we have that mentality, if we have that heart, brothers and sisters, we will definitely grow. So anyway, going on into our last two verses, in verses 20 and 21, we see our last sign of an apostle. I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before 
and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Now, what Paul is doing in this, these last two verses is he's really being honest about some of the fears that he has about the Corinthian church. Because he says there in verse 20, For I fear lest. And he lays out three fears in these two verses that he has about these Corinthian believers. In the first half of verse, sorry, yeah, verse 20, the first fear is that his fellowship with the Corinthian believers is not going to be at peace. Because he says, look, I'm, I'm fearful that when I come to you, I'm not going to find you as I wish, and you're not going to find me as you wish as well. That there's going to be some, we're not going to be in a good place in our relationship. That I'm going to find you not as I expect, you're going to find me not as I expect. That our relationship's not going to be where it should be. Then his second fear in the second half of verse 20 is really that the church is going to be in a terrible state relationally within themselves. He says there, look, he's, he's, he's fearful that he's going to find contentions, which basically is people arguing with each other, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, which is passionate anger, selfish ambitions, which are people trying to get into positions that they're not called to and they're going to do whatever they can to get there. Backbitings and whisperings. Well, that's gossip, basically. People slandering each other behind their backs or openly to their faces. Conceits is people being arrogant. And tumults is uh, basically confusion, disorder. And by the way, if this is going on in the church, it's not a good situation. If these things are happening in a church, wherever you are, something is seriously wrong. If people are relating to each other in this kind of way, then I would say that the church at best is in an in a impure state or they're under the influence of false teachers. And then lastly, in verse 21, he gives his third and I would say most sober, sober fear about this church. He says there that he's fearful that he's going to be humbled when he comes to the Corinthian church, which means that God is going to make him low. And what's he going to be humbled about? Well, the, the fact that he's going to have to mourn for many who've sinned before and have not repented of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which basically means sexual immorality. So adultery, sex before marriage, illicit kind of sexual immorality, impurity, all those things. But the most important thing I want you to see is that these people have sinned and have not repented. They've sinned in these things. They've been okay in them. They thought, you know what, this is all right. I don't need to turn from this. I'm not going to repent of it. And what he's fearful about there is that people say that they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. They say that they believe, but they're not truly born again. And this here is the mark of someone who's like that. They don't repent of their sin. Why? Because they don't have the spirit within them that would lead them to repentance. And Paul's fearful about that. He doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want to go back to the Corinthian church and go, oh no, my ministry's failed. These guys, they said they believed, but they obviously don't believe because they're sinning and they don't care. Three fears. 
Fear's about his relationship, their relationship, and the fact that people say they're Christians, but they're not. Now, I want you to think about this, that Paul, he's laying out these fears here about what he's going to find when he goes to the Corinthian church, but he did actually go to the Corinthian church a third time. I want you to just think about that. It's a bit like, for example, if I'm going to do a medical exam, I don't really want to, I don't really want to do a medical exam. I have certain fears about that. I have a fear that I'm going to fail. But I still go and do it. Do you know why? Because I'm committed to trying to go up the ladder as a doctor. And Paul is showing us here that he has a commitment to these people irrespective of what he's going to find when he goes there a third time. He's got these three pretty big fears, I would say. But he is showing us here the third sign of an apostle, and that is that an apostle of Jesus Christ must be committed to the people of God irrespective of what he finds in their hearts. He has to have this commitment. Where would he get this commitment from? Well, he would get this from Jesus, from the example of Jesus and through the teaching of the Spirit of Jesus in the New Testament. Do you know that Jesus says in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, through his Spirit, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Do you know that he says that he will finish the good work he started in us, that he will sanctify us through and through. He said in John chapter 10 that no one who belongs to him can be taken away from him. That sounds like commitment to me. Jesus, listen, is committed to every born-again believer irrespective of the sin that he finds in their life. Jesus is committed. For some of you in here, that might be slightly uneasing for you. You might think, is that really true, Adam? That Jesus is still committed to me irrespective of the sin in my life? Yes, he is. Why, Why is he? Well, because he died for that sin on the cross. Not just that sin, but sin that you're going to do in 20 years' time. He's provided by faith the power for you to be freed from that sin. And he will remove the presence of sin from you in the future. So yes, Jesus is committed to every born-again believer irrespective of what he finds in your heart because he's dealt with your sin, brothers and sisters. I mean, do we believe that in here this morning? Do we believe that Jesus has dealt with our sin eternally? Do we believe that we have the ability within us, we have that power that raised Jesus from the dead to free us from the power of sin in our lives? Do we believe that one day we are going to be free from the presence of sin? What a day that will be. Jesus is committed to us, brothers and sisters. And because of that, Paul had the same commitment to the Corinthian believers. He was prepared to go to Corinth, irrespective of what he found in them, because, like Jesus, he wanted to be part of how Jesus was ministering to those people to change them from the inside out, to make them more like him. 
This is why, even though he had these fears, he went to Corinth. Because the love of Christ compelled him to go. The Spirit of Christ kept telling him, you must go to Corinth. I've got people there who belong to me. They're in a bad place, but I want to sort them out. And I want to use you. And this is why he had this commitment. This is a commitment that every church leader must have. Every person that plants a church must have this commitment. They must be committed to the people that God entrusts into their care, whatever they find in their hearts. Why? Because Jesus has dealt with that person's sin. We must remember this, brothers and sisters. We must not let Satan rule our lives by lying to us and saying to us that our sin is not dealt with. That's a lie. That's a fat lie. Your sin was dealt with at the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God for your sin at the cross. Why do we listen to the devil who says, you're not really forgiven? Are you really sure that the cross is that powerful? Yes, it is that powerful. It is that powerful. The blood of Christ is that powerful for every single sin that has ever existed in this world. Hallelujah. We serve a powerful God, brothers and sisters, who is committed to us, who will not leave us. And because of that, the leaders of the church must have that same commitment. We have to have that same commitment to each other. Do you know that Jesus calls us to this commitment to each other? A couple of verses that illustrate this is in uh, Romans 12, verse 10, where it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another. Another translation says, Be devoted to one another with brotherly love, in honour, giving preference to one another. Then in 1 Peter 1.22 it says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a, with a pure heart. God has called us, listen, brothers and sisters, you've responded to the gospel, you have the Spirit within you, you have the love of God within you, and because of that he calls you to have a sincere love of the brethren. He calls you to be devoted to the brethren with brotherly love, giving preference to each other. I want to ask you a serious question in here this morning. Do you have that kind of commitment to the person sitting next to you? Have a, have a look around. <laughs> but seriously, do you have that commitment to the person sitting next to you? Do you have that commitment to the people in your home group? or to whatever group you go to within the church? Ask yourself that question, because this is the kind of commitment that God calls us to. And you know, if we have that commitment, brothers and sisters, if we take that step of faith and say, you know what? I'm going to be committed to you, brother. I'm going to be committed to you, sister. Whatever I find in your heart, however sinful you are, I am going to be committed to you because... That is going to stir the Spirit of God. That is going to stir the love of Christ within people. It is going to produce that unity of faith within this church and other churches in the world. It is going to produce people who are not dependent upon the praise of man, but upon God's affirmation, His praise for you as a child of God. Brothers and sisters, we've seen three signs of an apostle today. He must be someone who's dependent upon God for everything. 
He must be someone that promotes unity in the presence of weakness, and he must be a man who's committed to the people of God, irrespective of what he finds. And we've seen how that applies to us as well. Now, I want to finish with a couple of, couple of just reflections. Up on the screen, it should be up there, you'll see a list. And that list is a collation into one slide of all of the ministry credentials that myself and John have talked about going through this book of 2 Corinthians. And if there's one thing that I want you to remember in your heart as we finish this book over the next two weeks, is this list. Remember this list. Because this is what a credible leader of Jesus Christ's church will look like. This is how they will live their lives. This is what they will be walking in on a daily basis. And please, as you remember this list, please pray for your leaders. Myself and John are not perfect in these areas. We're not. We need your, we need your help through prayer. But also, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want a fruitful church in the UK? Because if we do, God is going to have to raise up leaders for that to occur. And it has to be leaders like this. Only by having leaders like this will the church move forward and grow again the way God wants it to. So please remember that list, brothers and sisters. But also for those of you in here who don't know the Lord yet, I want you to think about the person that we've been describing today in these verses. We've been describing someone who is, doesn't take advantage of people, is dependent upon God, someone who promotes unity, and someone who's committed to people in relationships. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good person. It sounds like someone that I want to hang around with and get to know. And I want you to know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus in here today, that God can make you like that person. That person is going to be what every single person is like in the future, in the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes back a second time. But the good news is, is that you don't have to wait till then. If you wait till then and you don't respond to the Lord, you won't be there. But you can respond to Jesus today. Jesus wants you to know that he loves you, that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead on the third day for you to deal with your sin that you have in your heart. And if you want to know him, it's very simple. You just need to cry out to him in repentance and faith. And he will save you. He will come into your heart via his spirit forever. Respond to him today.